everyone. We appreciate you being here today. This is uh, a second visit from RFK Jr., but he comes to us today in an entirely different situation. He's a presidential candidate. Uh, Dr. Kelly Victory has agreed to join us as well, so let's get right to it. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. You can spend thousands of dollars trying to look a few years younger, or you can skip all of that hassle and go with what works. Genucel Skincare. Genucel is the secret to better skin. In fact, you might have witnessed the astonishing effects of Genucel during a recent unplanned moment on our show. When just a little Genucel XV restored my skin within minutes right before your eyes. That's how fast these products work. I know I'm a snob about the products I use on my face. Everybody knows it. Every time I go to the dermatologist's office, they're just rows and rows of different creams. And then when I get to the counter, they're overpriced. All kinds of products that you can all find at Genucel.com. Susan and I love Genucel so much, we've created our own bundles so you can try our favorite anti-wrinkle treatments, correcting serums, and ultra-retinol creams. Just go to Genucel.com Drew. Use the code Drew for an extra discount and free priority shipping. Again, that is genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash D-R-E-W. I think everyone knows who Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is, but by way of intro, of course, he's a 2024 U.S. presidential candidate. He graduated of Harvard University, uh, also studied at London School of Economics, a law degree from UVA. He was on a law school faculty for a period of time. And, uh, of course, he comes from the Kennedy family. Uh, he can be followed on Twitter at Robert Kennedy Jr., all one word. And you can learn more, more about his campaign at Kennedy24.com. And as I said, I will bring Dr. Kelly Victory in here in just a moment. But first, please welcome RFK Jr. Welcome back, sir. Very happy to be here, Joe. So somewhat different circumstances than our last conversation, but I, I want you to know you said something that uh, jumped out so profoundly to me, and I, I hope you don't mind me asking this as a, sort of an opening question. Somebody asked you what you would do to unite the country, and you responded as though you'd been th you hadn't been thinking about it, but you had this very genuine response. I don't, I'd be curious to know if it's something you'd thought about before or not, but you said, what would I do? I would stop lying to the American people. And I thought, oh my God, that is one of the most profound and clear and accurate answers I've ever heard in politics. So I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit, both where the lying is coming in. I think we know it's coming in all over the place, but where is it concerning you most? And how would that bring people together? Uh, well, the lies, are, as you know, are coming from the government at this point and from the media, which is. Uh, which is aligned with, you know, large corporations and the government and in these in promoting these official orthodoxies. But one of the reasons I said that true was because I saw what happened to my father in 1968. My father, when he ran, had almost no chance of winning and did not believe that he was going to win. He was running against an incumbent president of his own party. He was running against a war, um, and he. Uh, he felt like he had to run morally because he couldn't support President Johnson during the election. And he would have felt like um, he just would have felt like he was uh, he'd had to either hide or go against the president of his own party. Uh, but he was he was uh, he had all the unions against them who had been with him when he had won, run my uncle's campaign eight years earlier in 1960. He had the big city mayors against him, including Mayor Daley. People had been critical to the victory back then. He had all the newspapers, particularly the liberal newspapers like the New York Times, Village Voice. Now, all of them were against them. They were on the side of the president. He had uh, the uh, all the New Frontier people who had run with him in 1960 and who he had put in office 
he had run my uncle's campaign. We're now with LBJ and we're working in the White House. So they were against him. So the, his chance of winning were very, very small, but that uh, hopelessness allowed him kind of a freedom, liberated him to really tell the truth to people. And when he went to speak to colleges and the students asked him, are you going to maintain our draft deferments? He said, no, the deferments, the college deferments are unfair. All of these students were in college because they wanted to escape Vietnam. Uh, They booed him originally, and then they began applauding him. When he went to Creighton or Indiana Medical School and, and the um, medical students asked him who's going to pay for your health care program. He told them, you are. Uh, he lectured pe- people in Watts in a, uh, in a black community about law and order. He lectured people in, at the University of Alabama on civil rights. And everywhere he went, he was telling people things that were hard truths, but they didn't want, want to hear. And the last day of his life, he united the country. He won both the most urban state in our country, California, and the most rural state, uh, uh, South Dakota. And when I, you know, the days after his death, we had this uh, this train ride that we took him on from Penn Station in New York to Union Station in Washington no, uh, no, to bury him at Arlington. And he and there were there were that that trip usually takes two and a half hours. It took seven and a half hours because there were two million people along the track. And they were the people that supported him in that election. And they were whites and they were blacks. Uh, they were rabbis, Jews in that crowd. I was on the train. I was 14 years old. And it was a whole cross-section of the American experience. Four years later, most of the white people in that crowd, their demographic data showed, had supported not him, but supported George, not uh, George McGovern, who was very aligned with my father and who was running in 72. But they supported George Wallace, who was antithetical to everything that my father talked about. And, uh, and so somehow he had taken or whites and blacks and unify them. And, he, and his strategy was just to tell them the truth. And I think one of the things that's really dividing people today is there's no, you know, there's no agreement on what information is. We're all going to different sources because we cannot trust the sources that are there to actually provide us good information, which is the government and the media that were trustworthy for, for the most part in 1968. Uh, but, you know, only when my uncle left office in 64, 80% of Americans trusted the government and even more trusted the media. You know, people like Walter Cronkite. <laughs> Today, 22% of Americans trust the government. And those are people who are not, uh, I would say they're not paying attention because anybody who trusts the government today is, uh, you know, is, as you know, they're not, they're not, uh, it's not trustworthy, let's face it. And the media is not trustworthy yeah. today. Yeah. It, it's become glaringly obvious. I, I'm not sure everyone really gets how bad it is, but it, it, it's bad. <laughs> At least, you know, it's it's like Gelman amnesia, right? You have, uh, there's a famous physicist named Gelman that would pick up the paper, read it. Whoops, I'm, oh, there we go. Read it every day. And whenever they would have a topic on uh, an art- article on physics, he would go, my God, they, they got this all wrong. And yet he assumed that the rest of the paper was accurate. The point is, we have amnesia in other areas. That's a really, that is, a, I don't mean to interrupt you, sorry, but it, but it just strikes me that that is, you know, that's one of the things that and if I'm up against for years when I talk on the vaccine issue, and I don't want to drag this into, into that, you know, into that issue again. but. Um, people, you know, liberals in my party do not trust the pharmaceutical industry. The four companies that make all the vaccines in this country have paid $35 billion in criminal penalties and damages over the past decade for lying to physicians, for defrauding regulators, for falsifying science, and for, you know, for killing uh, hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, the, the opioid epidemic, which is just about a, a lie. You have the regulatory agency, FDA. Anybody who wants to know what happens should go watch Dope Sick, which is you can see on Netflix. 
but it was the, you know, the Sacklers and these other Johnson, all these pharmaceutical companies who corrupted FDA and then got FDA to tell people that opioids were safe and effective and not addictive, that oxycodone was not addictive, that it was safe and effective. They did the same thing, Merck did the same thing with Vioxx in the early 2000s. It knew that Vioxx caused heart attacks. And the problem was it didn't tell anybody. It didn't tell the public. They, They knew they were killing people in their clinical trials from heart attacks, but they went ahead and and marketed as that's that that's the zone right there is the zone that that uh, you're putting your finger on that i think so much unravels they they find things things show up in their data they show it to the fda and tell them then why they shouldn't be concerned about it's exactly what they do with vioxx and the same thing is happening with so many other products and of course as you point you you've helped me learn the coziness between government and uh and the big corporations in terms of going back and forth with jobs and uh whatnot that's rather disturbing i didn't wasn't as aware of it until you told me about it and i found it to be quite true but i'm also wondering you know i feel like so much else is completely um I don't know what to call it, but inaccurate, and and we're just supposed to swallow it. And I don't think people are up for that anymore. It's not just, you're right, the pharmaceuticals are just sort of an isolated example. Gelman amnesia is another example in the press. But it feels like bureaucracy itself, that, that people have started to sort of justify their behavior based on doing good i'm saving the country from fascist i'm saving some company the country from populism i'm saving the country from whatever and untoward harm is being done in the name of thinking yourself good and then lying just becomes a natural sort of um a justifiable behavior to save the country is, is that what we're into here well i think there's two to me there's two issues that you put your on one is the agency capture phenomena, which is happening across our government, where we're seeing this uh, this merger of state and corporate power, where the agents, the companies that are in industries that are being regulated, um, are capturing the re- agencies that are supposed to regulate them and basically turning them into predatory organisms against the American people and instruments for uh, for essentially strip mining our assets, for commoditizing our people, for uh, selling poisonous products and and making a lot of money on it and liquidating our, our environment and our children for cash. It, that's happening and that's happening in all of the agencies. And I, you know, one of the things that why I feel like I could be helpful running for president is I've spent 40 years litigating against these agencies and, and I've been into the weeds. I kind of have a PhD in agency capture and how you unravel. I've, I've spent 20 years suing USDA, the Department of Agriculture, uh, which has taken that agency, which was designed to protect and, and, and nurture small farmers in this country who are critical to democracy. Thomas Jefferson said, American democracy is rooted in tens of thousands of independent freeholds owned by family farmers, but that agency has now become the, the instrument, the weapon. Agribusiness has weaponized that agency to destroy the small farmer and destroy good food in this country. And the whole process, food industry and the pesticide industry and chemical industry, Cargill and Monsanto and Bo Pilgrim and Frank Perdue and John Tyson are running that agency. And they're not running it for the benefit of the American people. They're running it for the, for their own profits. The pharmaceutical industry want, runs uh, HHS, FDA, NIH, CDC. And that's it. that is uh, agency capture on steroids because there, there's all these economic entanglements that occur nowhere else in the government. FDA gets 50% of its budget from pharmaceutical companies. NIH and NIH individual scientists are allowed to collect royalties on pharmaceutical products that they regulated and developed, that they helped regulate and develop. 
which, you know, that agency has now been, it, the regulatory function has been subsumed by the mercantile ambitions of the agency itself and individuals who are supposed to be protecting us. Uh, I've, you know, DOD, the reason that that train, I'm representing a thousand people who are, uh, whose lives were upended by the Norfolk Southern crash in East Palestine, and uh, and those, that agent, that crash was a direct product of agency capture of the failure of government. So all of the, and I've sued the FEC, all of these agencies, even the CIA and the FBI, but well, really the CIA has become, the, you know, captured by the military industrial complex. My uncle recognized this when he first came into office, that the, that the function of that agency has been to provide the military industrial complex, these big contractors with a constant pipeline of new wars to enrich them, but they're impoverishing the middle class in this country in the, in the process. And and I the really the, the horrifying to me thing to me, we're gonna bring Dr. Victory in here in just a second, but is the back to the idea of the Gelman amnesia that we you know we you're familiar with the areas where you have taken on these organizations, but the presumption is that all the agencies have some degree of capture, and that's the part that I find breathtaking. Yeah, and I love I've never heard a term Gelman amnesia, but it's very, very useful. Because people tend to identify, like I said, they know that the, that the drug, that the agencies, the drug companies lied about Biox and opioids, but there's about they can convince themselves that other products, including COVID vaccines, that this is the way. Even though, when it comes to the vaccines, the agency, the the, the companies have no penalty for lying because you can't sue them. They have they, there's you know those. We found out about opioids. We found out about Vioxx because private attorneys sued those companies on behalf of clients who were injured by those products. What if you have a product that they can never be sued for, no matter what they do, that no matter how grievous your injury, no matter how negligent their conduct, no matter how reckless they are, no matter how toxic the ingredient, nobody can sue them. Do you think, does your logic tell you that under those circumstances, they are actually going to exercise more care and concern about that product? And of course, you know, it was not just the company. It was that these were conspiracies between the company and the regulatory agency that's all supposed, also be, supposed to be protecting us. And the agency becomes complicit in all of the, you know, in the promotion of these products and the manufacture of these products. Yeah and in collecting royalties up. And because we don't really, because they are so opaque, we have no idea what other forces are coming to bear on the things they're telling us. So it all seems completely uh, hogwash. But Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is here with us. I'm gonna bring Dr. Kelly Victory in. I had to uh, shut down the Twitter spaces. We had some kind of technical problem where no, no one could hear us. So please do come on over to any of the platforms we are streaming on. We'll be right back after this. A lot of you have been asking for more information about how to counter the adverse effects of the spike protein from COVID infections and the COVID vaccine. The spike protein is not your friend, let's just say that. So I'm glad we have the wellness company Spike Support Formula as a sponsor, especially since renowned internist and cardiologist, Dr. Peter McCullough, who's also chief scientific officer of the wellness company, is one of its champions. There's some very intriguing research around natokinase, which might be a way to take on the spike protein. Listen to this. So start, if you would, with talking about natokinase, how you got to that and where you see its application. So with the viral infection or the vaccines, the spike protein stays within the body and it's found in the heart, the brain, the vital organs, and it's causing problems. The Japanese have been using this for heart and vascular disease now for 20 years. It's safe. It is a form of a mild blood thinner that it dissolves the spike protein nearly completely. Spike support formula is the only product on the market containing natokinase, dandelion root, and a host of other antioxidants, all showing promise in helping you protect yourself and your family. To order this unique, specially formulated supplement, go to drdrew.com TWC. That is drdrew.com TWC. Use code Drew at checkout for 10% off today. I recently discovered Paleo Valley. They have a line of products that align perfectly with a paleo dietary regimen. Goodbye to the limited rotation of eggs, burgers, and the standard fare. 
Hello to a wide variety of extraordinary products that are both healthful and delicious. Paleo Valley offers a spectacular range of options, including 100% grass-fed beef sticks. They're packed with nutrients like omega-3 fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, glutathione, CLA, and bioavailable protein. Plus, keto-friendly, make for a great protein-rich snack on the go. Paleo Valley's tasty beef sticks are not just 100% grass-fed, but also grass-finished, sourced from small domestic farms in the U.S., and flavored with real organic spices. They're also fermented, which means they contain natural probiotics that are great for gut health and they taste amazing. Try them out by heading over to drdrew.com slash paleovalley to get 15% off your first order today. Don't miss out on this opportunity to discover a brand that is perfect for your paleo lifestyle. President Trump recently issued a warning from his Mar-a-Lago home, quote, our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard which will be our greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years. There are three reasons the central banks are dumping the U.S. dollar, inflation, deficit spending, and our insurmountable national debt. The fact is, there is one asset that has withstood famine, wars, political and economic upheaval dating back to biblical times, gold. And you can own it in a tax-sheltered retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's right, Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Just visit birchgold.com drew for your free info kit. They'll hold your hand through the entire process. Think about this. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. How much more time does the dollar have? Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. I do not give financial advice, and previous performance is no guarantee of future performance. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew to get your free info kit on gold. That is B-I-R-C-H-G-O-L-D dot com slash D-R-E-W. There we are. Kelly Victory, your there friend RFK Jr. Hey, hey welcome back. How are you? Great to see you as always. Thanks for, uh, for getting back with us here. Um, I want to pick up on exactly where you and Drew were, were just chatting. But when people have asked me about your candidacy, because uh, many people are, are interested in it, I've said that, in my opinion, you are the anti-corruption candidate. And I cannot mm -hmm. think of a more compelling or important platform to have, given where we are as a country. Um, I think it's absolutely where the focus should be. And I appreciate uh, you for that. Uh, you and Drew were talking about agency capture, specifically big pharma's involvement uh, over aggressive, the, the tentacles that go from big pharma into HHS, the CDC, the FDA. Um, at the risk of being Debbie Downer here, one of the things that I have become aware of in the, uh, the duration of this pandemic debacle is the involvement of big pharma in the medical literature, medical journals. And I know Drew will agree mm. with me on that. Mm. It used to be that I would go to the storied medical journals, the Lancet, BMJ, you know, the JAMA, uh, and get what I considered to be that going to the source. I really prided myself in going to the source. Now we find out that actually big pharma is overly in bed with the medical journals. There is no such thing anymore as evidence-based medicine when it turns out that the evidence itself is fundamentally propaganda. And so I guess what I would ask you is, when you look at this as deeply as you have, the involvement, the agency capture, how do we rid big pharma, not only from you know the CDC, the FDA, the, but how do we get them the hell out of controlling healthcare in this country? Because that has really been, in my mind, much of what has created the disaster of this pandemic. Mm. Yeah, and you're right. It's the journals, uh, but it's also control of, uh, of the uh, universities, medical schools. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which are you know which are making a lot more money from NIH funding. NIH now. Its primary function is no longer you know, basic research. Like, why, you know, why are we having this uh, chronic disease epidemic that is now affecting probably seventy percent of American children, sixty-five to seventy percent of American children? Right. Where's it coming from? Why did we go autism from one in ten thousand in my generation to one in thirty today? Why did food allergies suddenly appear in 1989? Peanut allergies. Why did autoimmune disease suddenly appear in 1989? Mm -hmm. 
and no epidemic, rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile diabetes, and all these, and all the neurological disorders. Why is that? Ha- why are Americans suddenly obese? You know, what what is it? Something. These are all uh, environmental toxins that are causing the, right. these issues because genes don't cause epidemic. And of course, uh, the the NIH no longer funds that kind of basic science to make that determination, which is what it's supposed to do. It's become an incubator for pharmaceutical products. And, you know, it develops the products in NIH labs, then it farms them out to universities. It pays the universities half a billion dollars to each, in some cases, to to go through phase one trial. And then the university gets to keep a royalty interest. And then then it goes to phase two and phase three. Universities do that. And then, or phase two trials, and the pharmaceutical company comes in does phase three and gets the approval and that's all done in-house at HHS and everybody gets to keep a piece of the right. universities are everybody along the way. What you said about the journals is really critical, Kelly, because um the journal you know Marsha Angle, who's the law was a longtime editor of New England Journal of Medicine, said publicly in her book that the journals can no longer be trusted. They become right uh, become they become vessels for pharmaceutical industry propaganda. Richard Orton, who runs the Lancet, the most storied journal in history, 100, 170 years old, said the same thing about the Lancet, that most of the articles in the Lancet are propaganda, they're not truth. And these, you know, the original purpose and claim of these journals was, was a search for existential truths about right. medicine, where right. we can go there and the like, you cannot... One of the first thing, and the reason for that is 85% in most cases of, of the revenues from these journals, and some of them are enormously uh, lucrative, mm-hmm. is coming from pharmaceutical advertising and from preprints. What are preprints? A preprint is when a pharmaceutical company creates a study that oftentimes lies about the efficacy and safety of its product. And then it gets the, it, you know, use political clout to get and financial clout to get the Lancet to publish that study. And then it buys reprints of that study and hands those, which is, it's a, it, it's a, it's a little pamphlet that just has the study on, but the cover, cover of the Lancet. And then it distributes that to 150,000, 200,000 pharmaceutical reps that work for those companies. And when they go to visit doctors, they hand the doctor that preprint and they say, look, the Lancet has said that this is a great product, that it works. It's very, very persuasive because doctors do not know that the Lancet has become utterly corrupted, that the New England Journal of Medicine, that the Journal of American Medical Association are utterly corrupt. There's nothing in there that can be believed. As soon as I'm elected one of the, and appoint my attorney general, one of the first meetings that my attorney general is going to have is to call the editors and publishers of those journals into our office, the, to the Justice Department where my father used to work, and uh, and tell them that we're about to file racketeering cases against them for lying to the public uh, under antitrust acts and under fraud acts. Uh, and under RICO, which is a, a, a statute that my father wrote. Um, and that if they don't come up with a plan as to how they are going to divorce themselves from the pharmaceutical industry, that we are going to go into their office and we're going to confiscate their files and that we are going to prosecute them criminally because this is just part of the big lie to the American public. They're deceiving doctors. They are harming people. They are killing Americans. And we need to make it stop. No, I, I, I agree curious, with you. And I think that guys, is cr- yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Drew. Keep going, Kelly. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, what I was going to say is, it, it, to be clear, it's not just the fact that they are publishing things that are fraudulent. It's all the articles and studies they won't publish yeah. because they won't publish anything that speaks against a pharmaceutical uh, agent that they want. Then you Oops. add on top of that sort of the you know the uh, crowning blow, which is if you're sitting like I am in California today, 
they pass SB 2098 that says on top of it, a physician can be frankly prosecuted for speaking out and saying anything against the prescribed narrative of the state. So if they control the agencies, they control the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, they control what's in the storied medical journals, and then they say, and if you dare on top of that doctor, be a thinking individual who still manages to find a nugget of truth, if you dare speak it, we will strip you of your medical license. Yeah, Kelly, Kelly, yeah, I got to so tell I, you, we'll, we'll just call that the opioid crisis. H having lived through the opioid crisis and been one of those people who was uh, th condemned by the Department of Mental Health, the Joint Commission on Hospital Accreditation, the VA, the California Medical Association, our own B Board of Medical Quality Assurance, because right. I was old-fashioned, a dinosaur, and interested in human suffering because I wouldn't give my heroin addicts Vicodin when they demanded it, or I wouldn't give a 90 pills right. to somebody as they left a drug treatment center. It was an insanity. So whenever they talk about standard of care, and that was the standard of care set by those agencies, of course, as, as RFK Jr. pointed out, um, you know, created by the Sacklers and undermined and put rocket fuel into it by them. The, again, I think it's so funny that we started out talking about Gelman amnesia. He, he's right. The Gelman amnesia is a model for how we should look at so many of these different government agencies and how they are involved with our life and where they have gone off the rail by involving themselves with these corrupting influences. It's got to be, I think he's really onto it. So my question is, what, well, that's that's a way to do it in one agency. What what else, what are you gonna do? That's for the for the journals. What are you gonna do for right. the, the big agencies? What are you gonna do for the FDA, the, F, the FBI and the uh, CIA? What do you, what do you <laughs> have planned there for those guys? Or is that still a work in progress? Yeah. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, oh boy. Oh, he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's not addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. Here's the thing that I, that's what I think about in my leisure time. Uh, other people think about other stuff, but I think about how to unravel. <laughs> and, you know, with the CIA, which I think is the most problematical. Um, and, you know, we saw the Durham report and all of these, which, you know, I, I'm a Democrat, but that's not a partisan issue when you have federal enforcement agencies framing a whatever you think of the president. And, I, you know, I am not a fan of, of Donald Trump, but he's the president of the United States. You cannot have law enforcement agencies uh, illegally and fraudulently framing him. And it was re it's really it's, it's insane. But with the CIA, my dad uh, had a I had a plan for reorganizing the CIA. And, and like most of these agencies, it is a victim of perverse incentives. Um, my daughter-in-law, who is one of the top officials on my campaign, Amaryllis Fox, was a clandestine spy for the CIA for her whole career. She was a, uh, an agent in the, in the weapons of mass destruction program in the Mideast and in China. And she does, and she published a book on that against 
the CIA's orders and uh, her relationship with the agency is uh, is shattered. She is a very jaundiced eye about the agency and is brilliant about in the way that she thinks about it. But what she says, there's 20,000 people who work for that agency, and this can be said for most of the agency. There's 22,000 people who work for the CIA. 90% of them are good Americans, and they're good public officials, and they're patriots, and they want to do the right thing, and they have the idealism still that led them into those jobs. The problem is that the people who tend to flourish at these agencies and survive and rise to run the divisions and the branches are people who are in the tank with industry and who are carrying water for the industry. And the CIA has, and you know, FDA, as I talked about, and the health agencies have their own unique set of problems, which is these financial entanglements with the industries they're supposed to regulate with the pharmaceutical industry. The CIA has a perverse incentive system of its own that's unique, which is that um, the plans division, which is the clandestine division, which is the, the division that does black ops, it does it, you know, it starts wars and uh, it fixes elections and assassinates leaders and bribes unit officials and does all this kind of dirty work. Um, that uh, then it is that there's no there, there's a seamless unity between that and the espionage division, which is spy, which is which is information gathering. We need the espionage division to be functional. We need information. The espionage division is. Is intended to was the original intent of the whole CIA because it wasn't supposed to be doing these paramilitary actions and other mischief. But Alan Dulles changed that very very early on with, with these cunning uh, legislative and and uh, and other maneuvers. Originally, it was created simply as an espionage agency to gather information for the president of the United States to do analysis, high level analysis, and then provide him with good advice. Um, but unfortunately, what's happened is the plant, the clandestine division has, is the tail that is now wagging the espionage dog. And so the espionage division now becomes, a, its function is to justify things that were done by the plant division and provide them new opportunities to fix things. And every time they try to fix something, it gets worse. And the and there's no never any accountability. So that you know, if the CIA does something like propagandize the American people, which is illegal under its charter, but it's doing every day, and that's part of what it was doing. You know, with the it was doing the Twitter file showed that the CIA had a portal that it was using to censor people like me. It's illegal to do that, and yet they were doing it. And nobody's looking over their shoulder. And we need to divide those two functions into separate agencies and have the espionage division really hold accountable the plans division. I'll just give you a couple of examples. If you ask the CIA today, you know, about its greatest successes, one of the things it will list was the overthrow of Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran in 1953. And Mohammed Mossadegh was a you know, it was the first democratically elected president in the in, in Persia's 4,000-year history. He was beloved around the world. But he nationalized the oil companies, including Texaco and BP. And Texaco had been one of uh, Alan Dulles's clients when he was a an attorney in his prior, prior job as an attorney for Sullivan Cromwell. And we overthrew him. And, you know, the CIA regards that as a success story, but we are still living with the catastrophe because everybody in Iran knows that we overthrew their government when they get, when they had a democratically elected government. It's just, it's part of the DNA in the Iranian mind. Iran should be our best friend, along with Israel and the Mideast. Uh, they, they, uh, they shouldn't be our enemy. And the reason they're still our enemy is largely rooted in that act. The same thing is true with Guatemala the following year. The CIA overthrew the democratically elected president of Guatemala, probably the greatest, Yacobar Arbenz, probably the greatest figure in Guatemala in history because he nationalized United Fruit, which was another, uh, another of uh, Alan Dulles' clients. Well, today, the people who are flooding to the border, you know, that are disproportionately Guatemalan, that country has never recovered from that act. In fact, the only country in Central America 
that is is not sending refugees up to the border in any significant numbers is Costa Rica. It is the wealthiest country per capita in Central America and the most stable. And it is the only country in Central America that we have never invaded and that the CIA has not killed any of its leaders. The only country. So what we need is to look at these CIA actions when the CIA bomb, you know, kills a terrorist with a drone strike and his family dies. That's written down as a success story. We need somebody to look over and say, really, is it really a success? If that, you know, what happened to his brothers now and his cousins and his kids? Are they now filled with hatred to the United States? Are they strapping on suicide bomb vests? Are they now recruited into terrorist organizations? And, and we really need to do that kind of a high level analysis. And, you know, and that's not happening at the CIA at all. The, the big issues that the president really knows needs to know is not happening. Because the CIA has to distort everything to justify what's happening with the with the plans division. We need to separate those two uh, functions. Talk a little bit more about, you know, when you talk about propaganda and we, Caleb was showing a couple of tweets of yours where you're talking about censorship. You can't have a, a successful propaganda campaign without necessarily silencing, it includes part and parcel, silencing those voices, those people who say other things. Talk about your approach to uh, the over-involvement of the federal government with big tech. Uh, you know, we live, unfortunately or fortunately, in a land of uh, social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. You know, when the federal government is colluding with and working with big tech, these private agencies, to shut up, silence, sideline, and cancel alternative voices. You know, where where would you stand on that? How would you approach that issue? Well, that, you know, those uh, those technology companies, those social media platforms, are really um, they're 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 analogous to publishers, and publisher can publish anything it wants, and it can refuse to publish anything it wants. So if a publisher, if a social media company like uh, Facebook or Instagram, which deplatformed me, they have an absolute right to do that. If they don't like what I'm saying, and you know, if I'm saying something that they consider inaccurate or whatever, they're, they're allowed to do that. Even if what I'm saying is accurate, which it was, and uh, it was you know, against the narrative, they can do it. The problem is when the government tells them to do it and pressures them to do it, and uh, and then the First Amendment is implicated because the government is not allowed to direct the censorship of speech, and that was what was happening. We now know from the Twitter files and from all these emails that were be, are being released that the federal government was actively pressuring these companies to uh, to do things that probably the companies did not want to do. Um, some of the companies, the optics were very bad for those companies because those companies were the primary beneficiaries of the lockdowns. And so the lockdowns really changed the economic profile of our country. Uh, every day of the lockdowns, we created a new billionaire. It, there were 500 new billionaires created. And there was a, you know, we closed down 3.3 million businesses, small businesses. And then, uh, and you know, Amazon essentially got to close down all of its competitors and then profited enormously from that shutdown and just changing human behavior and, and increasing revenues uh, exponentially. So um, there was, during the lockdown, there was a 3.3 billion, a trillion, 3.98, in other words, $4 trillion shift in wealth biggest in history from the American middle class to this new generation, this new aristocracy of billionaires. Um, we, the, as I said, we created 500 new billionaires, but the Oxfam report, which just came out, shows that the billionaires who were billionaires prior to the pandemic increased their wealth on average by 30%. And many of those were social media companies that were, uh, or media like Bloomberg, which were actively censoring criticism of the lockdown. And, and so the optics for those companies today are, are really bad. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm going to 
really investigate in the White House is how much of that, which I'll be able to do because I'll be running the agencies now, these law enforcement agencies, and I'll be able to get to the bottom of it. How much were the how much of this was government pressure against a unwilling uh, social media companies, and how much were they actively colluding? In which case, we need to think about how to regulate them, whether we need to turn them into common carriers um, so that they cannot be censored or or what. There's a lot of options that we can do, but we really need to kind of understand what happened during the pandemic and how much was them and how much was just raw government pressure. You know, I got censored heavily, um, but I want to say this. And I, um, my censorship uh, was less impactful on my life. I have, because of my background, because of my my history as a successful attorney and the relationships I built over time, um, I have a certain amount of resilience so that they could not completely crush me. Uh, but there are other people, there are just, you know, there are doctors like Peter McCulloch, who I know is a friend of this show, and Robert Malone, and uh, and Ryan Cole, who are, you know, Ryan Cole is just, a, he's a humble physician and business guy from, from, uh, from Idaho. And you're going to now go in and try to take his life, medical license and ruin his life and destroy his family so he can't pay his mortgage. And so many doctors suffered like that. And that is, uh, you know, that's inexcusable. And we need to make sure that that can never happen again. And, you know, one of the things I'd love to talk to you guys about sometime is just the role of the of the medical boards in deplatforming. Oh, boy. And, and leadership. Yeah. You know, it was... And what, boy, they... I, I, yeah, they... Go ahead, Bobby. Sorry. I, I just want to say one last thing, which is you brought up this terrible bill in uh, in California which is now going to, you know, it's a, it's a doctor, don't treat your patient, Bill. It's a doctor, right. you know, and it makes, it does something that is really breathtaking, which is it shatters this 2,800-year-old relationship between physicians and their patients right. that has existed since Hippocrates, where that, you know when you go to your doctor that his duty is to you and that he is going to, He's going to use all of his talents, all of his gifts in healing, he or she, to treat you, to keep your confidences, and uh, and that you're going to be the center of his attention. So you tell the truth to him and you reveal everything to him. And we protect that with laws that, have, that, are, that are the doctor-patient privilege laws so, so that they're going to give you, when you go to your doctor, the best treatment possible. You've now changed that relationship. So the doctor is now not have this special relationship with the patient. He now becomes an agent of the state. Correct. And that's what yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's what yeah, happened. It is, in this is it, in Germany. As terrifying as it is, it is. As we say, as terrifying as it is to to a to a patient, it should be far. I mean, to a physician, twenty ninety eight is terrifying to physicians. It should be far more terrifying to patients because you can no longer trust that the advice your or course of treatment that your physician is suggesting is because he or she believes, based on his or her experience, what they've read in the journals, their their background, their training, is the right thing, or is it simply because they they can't afford to lose their license because they've got a mortgage to pay? So or, you can't trust they, what your doctor says. Or are they treating you for the good of other people? Which is what right. you know they're so are they, you know, are they giving you this treatment which is not benefiting you, but it's good for the community in their minds? Right. And you know, that right. is this it's a subtle, but it is such a dramatic uh, um, you know, different and I was gonna say this during you know during the um during the Third Reich, um, doctors were told that they had to report patients who had defects. In other words, had um, you know, if they had physical defects, if they had mental defects, and those patients were then you know eliminated one way from the population of the breeding pool, or whatever. Many of them were sterilized. Many of them were killed. And every physician in you know this is in uh, I, I'm taking this from William Shire's book. The rise and fall of the Third Reich. He says not one physician in 
in Germany objected publicly to this, and none of the medical associations, everybody went along with this. And it, it completely changes the relationship between doctor and patient because the doctor is now treating the patient as an agent of state policy rather than for the good of that patient. And you can imagine where this goes. For example, you know, in China, where they, you know, they have these, uh, these birth policies, is the, you know, is the doctor going to do sterilize you because he doesn't believe that you are a good breeder? Is he going to, you know, most of our, uh, nowadays, most of our, our medical expenses as a nation go to treating people in the last six months of their lives. Yeah. So is it a better social policy just to eliminate those people early on so that we don't waste all that money and we can spend it elsewhere? And, mm-hmm. and the, the doctor now becomes the arbiter of those kind of decisions rather than the narrowly folk. And how do they I are, They are definitely going for that. There's no doubt in my mind that's what a certain ideology would defend, exactly what you're talking about. I mean, I look well, the way we dealt. Just COVID was a living, breathing example. That the way we, whether you agree with vaccination or not, the way we rolled out the vaccine was based on what was good for the community and what was good for the individual at hand. There was a lot. There's a lot of that there going for all the time. And you're right. It's an it's a grotesque adulteration of the physician patient relationship. And right. just let me tell you quickly on 2098. When I saw that, I called the California Medical Board and I spoke to the president of the California Medical Board lovely woman. She's an attorney. Her father was a urologist. I believe she means well. Uh, she was reassuring, though she did two chilling things came out of it. A, she said, you know, we didn't really need this. We already have the authority to do anything we want that way, which was lovely to hear. And secondly, secondly, uh, I thought to myself, well, she's well-meaning and smart, but who gets in that job next? Who gets in that job next? What, and what will that create? Yeah, I mean, you have to assume, and this is just a rule in political science, any power that a government takes from you, it will never give back voluntarily. And number two, any power they take, they will will ultimately be be abused to the maximum extent possible. So you have to assume that if you give them a power, it is going to be abused. And it's usually very nice, well-meaning power, people who who are, you know, aggregating those powers. And then they leave and somebody really uh, malevolent comes in and, you know, and starts using those powers in the ways that, you know, are nightmarish. But always in the name of good, always name of we're we're the good guys doing what's right for everybody. And that's the that's the horror story of government excess. Yeah, in the same way that we've seen weaponization of the CIA and FBI and DOJ, they certainly Mm -hmm. did weaponize the medical boards, the state medical boards, and this really uh, amorphous, uh, unelected nonprofit group called the Federation of State Medical Boards. You're hard-pressed to even Mm -hmm. find the names of the people on that or get a mailing address. They're down in Texas. They have literally destroyed the lives of of hundreds and hundreds of physicians during this um, this pandemic, I personally had to defend myself seven times to the state medical boards uh, in various states for things that I said on on various television shows or radio shows. And it's debilitating. It's exhausting. It's uh, it's emotionally it's trying, to be doing. financially taxing, uh, and it's yeah. certainly. For most people, well, you know, they everybody shuts up and says, "I I can't afford that. I don't want that to happen yeah. to me." So they, yeah. uh, it has the chilling effect. And they have this tremendous power because we represented a lot of these physicians. You know, one of the things I was doing at CHD was bankrolling cases for these physicians mm-hmm. who were getting uh, steamrolled, and then representing them and making sure they had good counsel. And those cases always get lost. We lose them all every time because the power of those of those uh, medical right. boards. Uh, to to they, if the courts look at them as kind of a club that they're not really a governmental organization that it's right. a club and and uh, and being a doctor is being part of a club and if you're part of a club it, the club can get rid of you no matter for good reason or bad reason and and the club right. can lie they can cheat they can steal they can do anything they want and the courts can't interfere with it it's really just a it's a breathtaking power that they exercise and. Yeah. You know, when I get in there, I'm going to figure out how to fix that. I don't know exactly how because it, they're state operated, but there's going to be, I'm going to figure out a federal lever 
um, to, to uh, either Boy, time. that would be uh, that behavior or just to make sure that doctors are never victimized again. Doctors ought to be able to treat their patients without somebody looking over their shoulder. It's been terrible what's happened the last three years. And, you know, doctors are living in terror. I'm shocked because I just thought all the doctors were against me, you know, because they all just bought into their <laughs> orthodoxy. And I go into the UCLA Medical Center and people come out and hug me and say, thank you. I had to stay silent. Right. I couldn't talk. And I'm so grateful that you were out there doing it. It's been yeah. very, very tough mm-hmm. for me. No question. It, we, I, I'm watching the clock here. If you'll indulge me, I'd want to switch gears if we could and talk a little bit about education uh, and what the heck is going on with our education system here in the United States. I mean, the three of us here today uh, got at least our primary education before there was a Department of Education. It didn't exist until, what, 1974, I think it was established. So now we have this behemoth in Washington, this Department of Education, and and I don't know what's going on in our schools or who the heck is running it, but um, you know, children, we are, certainly aren't holding our own on an international uh, level. We're getting uh, our pants beaten off by by people in in China and elsewhere, India. They're uh, getting way ahead of us in terms of our math and reading scores. And more worrisome, perhaps, is that it seems they're spending far more time on social justice issues, uh, gender studies, gender equality, and things of that sort, rather than the basics. Talk a little bit about where you stand on what's going on in the U.S. education, particularly public school education is what I'm talking about, and how you would address the problems there. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the the problems with schools are, you know, are occurring on the state levels and the way that you, uh, and the, you know, the choices and um, that the, 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 people make about how to educate their kids and how the schools operate are really our state level choices and wouldn't be easily susceptible to a federal fix. But, you know, I, to me, the welfare of our children, the education of our children is the number one issue. We need to be, uh, you know, we need to have kids who can, who can compete globally. And, uh, and, now, I don't know uh, exactly how to fix what's going to happen, what's happening now. It's one of the issues that I really need to study when I get in there and between now and the election. But uh, what what what's happening now is intolerable. My sister-in-law is a teacher. She teaches teachers and um, and Cheryl's sister. And uh, she's a Ph.D. and she teaches uh, at a she teaches at, uh, UCF. Um, and you know, it, it's it's ridiculous the pay that the get, that teachers get in this country. That, that you know, why are these are the people who are most important to our children? Why aren't we paying them what they're worth? And you know, that I think we can begin partially with that. I I have a quick uh, yeah. anecdote and a, and a question. One is, uh, I I I remember when um, President Obama was in office and Chelsea Handler brought his Secretary of Education into her show. She goes, I've never been educated. I figure I'd bring the Secretary of Education to try to understand education better. And she goes, what do you do as Secretary of Education? He stopped and went, what do I do? Well, I make sure the civil rights of every student in the country is maintained. That's my job as Secretary of Education. I thought, oh my God, nothing to do with education? That's unbelievable. So I wonder what's going on in that department, number one. Number two, we're sort of rolling to a stop here. You've been very generous with your time. I don't want to let you go without a quick question about fentanyl and what you might be able to do about that. Uh, Well... Uh, I mean, you know, my history is, a, you know, I was a, a drug addict myself for uh, 14 years from beginning when, right after my dad died when I was 15 years old. And um, and so I've been, you know, uh, I've been thinking about sobriety for 40 years. And I, I see what's happening in this country now, this, you know, this dramatic expansion of, of, uh, of opioid deaths. We now, I think last year had 106,000 opioid deaths. That's almost twice of the, the number of kids that were killed in the Vietnam War, in 20-year in Vietnam War, but we're killing that many every year. And all of us, I don't think there's a, 
family in this country whose lives have not been touched. You know, my family certainly has. I lost a couple of my brothers. I've lost a niece uh, during the pandemic uh, to uh, to opioid overdoses. And um, I, you know, and if you go to rural communities like the ones that I spend a lot of time in in this country, it is it's it's a plague beyond anything that I think any American can ever imagine. Uh, and a lot of it, you know, there. It's interesting because I know you're an expert on addiction, and a lot of people will argue that uh, you know, ten percent of any population is going to be addicts. On um, that, there's a genetic component to addiction, and that you know, the, the what drug you get addicted to is kind of you know is is cultural. Uh, but you're just going to have these this group of people that it's always going to be addicts. But I think it's pretty clear also that addiction is, you know, drug drug addiction for me was kind of a shortcut to uh, to spirituality in a weird way because it comes from a, a disconnectedness and a hunger and empty space inside of you that you need to fill with God somehow or some kind of spiritual connection. And instead, you you reach outside of yourself for some substance or or some action that will fix that emptiness inside of you. And I believe that that emptiness we feel inside of ourselves is compounded across the population. And you know, with the alienation people are feeling, um, the the nihilism, the hopelessness. If you talk to young people in this country. In my era, they were the most idealistic people. Today, you know, I find such a high degree of hopelessness and nihilism in young people that we have to start reaching. One of the things I'm going to do, Drew, you know, which is going to be my Peace Corps program, uh, you know, an analogy for my uncle's Peace Corps program, is I'm going to launch a series of healing centers all across our country. As you know, the, the um, the the uh, recovery industry in this country was a very large industry. It may be as big as $42 billion a year, uh, but there, it's very predatory in many senses. And we need to be able to get, and it's very expensive to get treatment. And I, you know, I've gone, when I first got sober, I would take people up a place called High Watch Farms in Connecticut, which was started by the founders of AA and Bill Wilson and his friends, and then it was uh, and then it was handed over to another group because AA was not allowed by its own charter to own anything. And but this place I could bring people to. There was no physician on staff, but it was basically barracks um, that were very pleasant. Um, but they went to meetings and they. Um, and they uh, and people got treatment, and you could do it for seventy five dollars a week. And I brought probably over a hundred people up there, and they got sober. And um, and it, it it was about reestablishing people's relationship with community, and and reorient reparenting people, you know, who were completely lost in areas of their life, and and to reestablish their connection with with community and some kind of spirituality, not in a religious nature, nature, but, you know, to fill that empty hole with connectiveness. Addiction is a, is a disease of isolation and, uh, and the recovery is about re reestablishing connections to other people and with community by cleaning up the defects of character that stand between you and other people. And, uh, and I'm going to, I'm, you know, one of the, my major initiatives is to go to rural areas in this country and, uh, and build these facilities, partner with 501c3s, with charitable organizations, and, you know, build facilities that kids can go to with, with mental illness. And by the way, the addiction is not just to, you know, to heroin and fentanyl. There's uh, 120 million addicts there, are, there are, and there, there's as many people addicted to SRIs and 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 benzos, right. uh, uh, which is the same thing. What? Right. Well, he's saying screens. I will screens. tell you that, yeah, the, the uh, uh, social media, I think, is the root of all evil because it is it is driving. I tell you the disenfranchisement. Let, let me ahead, just we, say we have one. to wrap up. Go ahead, Bobby. Finish. Uh, go ahead. There's a 
place that I've visited many times that it's kind of a model for the way I'm thinking about this. Yeah. In Italy, it's called San Padrinano, and it and the only requirement for going there is that you commit to five years. It's absolutely free, and they do organic farming, and they teach skills. They have bakeries and, and furniture uh, factories, and they are basically self-sufficient. And one thing is they do not allow screens. Nobody has a cell phone, yeah. and they're forced to actually talk with other human beings. And they reparented and learn that skill again about how to connect to communities. Yeah. And yeah. I really want to, it's so successful over there. There's 2,000 kids who live there. They can stay as long as they want. They, they stay a minimum of five years, and they, they come out completely changed. And we need oh, to I'm be sure. able to the people in this country who are lost right now. I, I I can support virtually every word that came out of your mouth about addiction and yeah. some of these models for treatment. I, it's absolutely accurate. Kelly, last words. We got to let Bobby go. Well, I was just going to say it goes, it goes, it goes way beyond addiction. It goes beyond it, to the disenfranchisement of uh, certainly Americans from one another. It's driving the increases in violent crimes. It's it's in it's increasing all of the problems. I would say that we are having uh, can be boiled down to a uh, a disenfranchisement. People are disconnected from one another. And the more you drive social media, the more people have a false flag and believe that they actually have uh, friends and connectivity when it's quite yeah. the opposite. Yep. Um, the and, things uh, that you're talking about, emptiness. I think would go. Yeah. And so, I, and I think that it has put, made us, uh, frankly, susceptible to the PSYOP that just occurred for the past three years in this pandemic. Um, and I don't think these things would have ever happened if people had been more grounded in family and church and uh, community. So the, what you're talking about, I think, is is critical. I, as I said, I introduce you as the anti-corruption candidate. I still think of you as that. But uh, the I work agree. and what you're talking about with regard to bringing this country back together uh, is absolutely predicated on, on what you're talking about in community community, family, uh, and regrounding as Americans. And that is a nonpartisan um, goal. So thank you for being here. Yes, thank you. Thank you, so thank you, for, thank you for your courage, Drew and, and Kelly. Thank you very much. You, you've said that before, but I, I am, uh, <laughs> it, it's getting easier. It's getting a lot easier based on the things you're saying. It's, it's, uh, I can get behind so much. <laughs> So yeah. uh, I, I really am kind yeah. of excited by a lot of what you said today. I hope other people are too. And I promise to let you go. So I will do so. Kelly, thank you as always. See you on Wednesday. I believe you're back with me. And, with uh, with Dr. Uh, Latipo. Yeah. Uh, I, it might be. Oh, a, is that right? A, no, a I'm Tima? sorry. No, Atiba. Atiba. Dr. Latipo yeah, is the following week. Sorry. There you go. All right. Yep. Uh, let everyone go. Thank you so much, everybody. Uh, think hard about what you heard today. See you tomorrow at two, 3 o'clock Pacific time. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Yeah.